0: Hello, welcome to this week's episode of Juicing the Big Screen, your movies and reviews podcast. I am one of your critics, Joshua Tracy.
1: And I am one of your other critics. I was trying to think of something funny, but I'm not that creative, Cormac Heller.
0: It's the same intro every week. He has time to prepare. He chooses not to. (laughs) (laughs) Oh
1: boy, I... That that actually cuts really deep. That... uh... (laughs) That is a <laughs> dilemma I've been facing for a lot. Longer, recording this podcast.
0: Oh, it's all good, buddy. All right, so we've got the uh, the 2020 film uh, documentary Zappa and the 2019 film 1917. Uh, Corwin, do you have a preference on where we start? Uh,
1: let's start with Zappa.
0: I, I was going to say the same thing, so that works out well. Um. All right. So, yeah, looking at the 2020 documentary film Zappa, it is about Frank Zappa. It was written and directed by Alex Winter, um, starring, loosely speaking, because <laughs> it's a documentary, David Bowie, Frank Zappa, and Ringo Starr. Um, will we get an estimated budget? Yeah,
1: you could say that those were the stars of that film, even though they I were... remember seeing David Bowie in, like, a shot.
0: Yeah, I don't, were... see, I don't even
1: remember seeing Ringo Starr.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, there's no estimated budget on on IMDB. They have the opening weekend or the um the cumulative worldwide gross is being fourteen thousand three hundred and eighty nine dollars, which actually, of all the streaming service, because this is an Amazon Prime original. So, of all the streaming service allotments, I would actually say this probably makes the most sense since this just came out um uh, on november twenty ninth. So I think one week ago today, yeah, we're recording this on the sixth for reference. December sixth so if you were to tell me that you know whatever fourteen thousand three hundred eighty nine because it was um i I'm not gonna ask you because I don't want to, I don't want you to incriminate yourself but I paid for this um and three fourteen thousand it was seven dollars so if you told me two thousand fifty five people paid to watch this in a week I'd actually say that's a pretty fair number um yeah
1: two thousand sure. yeah
0: For for something as specific and not well advertised for that I found by accident via a Google search, um, and and a Frank Zappa documentary seems to track pretty well. So I'm willing to buy that, but it's also been one week, so we'll give that time to grow. That gross anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, It has no tagline. Um, It just came out. It has no major awards nominations, no nor wins it is about frank zappa man what a
1: shit movie no award nominations no wins nothing (sighs) fucking
0: yeah right um so this is this is nothing to really say here Uh, um introduction wise so i'll give my uh or you know i guess tech specs and whatnot introduction wise so i'll give my uh informal introduction of it this is my pick um i am a i'm a big zappa fan uh i'm I've always had a weird connection with his music that has grown very much so over the last year or so, especially. So I was really looking forward to sinking my teeth into this. And this is not the documentary I was expecting. And I guess that's what I'm going to be interested in in talking to you about. Uh, this was very, very different than, I think, every other musician or band documentary I've ever watched. And I'm not committed to saying that's like necessarily a good thing or a bad thing yet. And I, I want to I hash it out with you a little bit um, and, and kind of sit on it. But this is a very different approach to the musician documentary in, in, in a few different ways. And I got out of it things I wasn't expecting to get out of it, which I think makes it good. There were things I was looking to be discussed that would have followed the more traditional musician documentary kind of tropes and whatnot. That I didn't get, which made me feel like I was missing something as someone who is a Zappa fan. But at the same time, I don't think it needed to be everything I needed it to be for it to be good. So I'm 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 not like here to jerk it off or to say it's bad. I'm still kind of sitting on it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um but I've got things to discuss. So that's that's where I'm at with it. How about you?
1: Ooh, you have things to discuss. Ooh. Um I I thought I was going to be able to find something to lead into that but obviously not. Uh, <laughs> god, I hate myself. <laughs> <laughs> um wow. Okay. Um before we go into my thoughts on the film, this is just a complete non-sequitur. I am on a, a a website where you can go to download movie files that I won't say the name of, um, but it's pirates of the Caribbean themed uh, looking for a download for tenant and the 4k IMAX Blu-ray rip for tenant. Do you want to guess how large it is?
0: Oh man. I'm going to guess double digit gigs. So I'm going to say 10. No. No. How much?
1: 76.5. Oh
0: my god. <laughs> Fuck you. I don't even know how that's possible.
1: There's Fuck another you. one here. 4K Blu-ray IMAX
0: 82.5? Wow. I I want to watch this in 4K though sorry uh
1: zappa josh i'll be honest with you i i didn't really know who frank zappa was i i knew he was a rocker i knew he was a famous guitar player i knew he was someone you enjoyed quite a bit i never really listened to frank zappa i don't know if i could name you a single album you know uh I could name "Freak Out" now because it was heavily talked about in the film. I don't think I could name any others, and I just I don't know if I can name any songs. Like I am not a Frank Zappa fan. He is not which someone I, that has ever really entered my my library, or you know, made it onto a playlist because it's not someone my parents listen to. It's not someone any of my friends, other than you, listen to. And we have I, enough I, other music to talk about that it I, never I came think- up.
0: I think is how most people are approaching this documentary or most people who would be listening to this would be approaching this documentary because he's not, this isn't a queen documentary where no. you might not be a fan, which I don't, well, I wouldn't understand that either, but you at least like, you know, you know, the hits you've, you've heard, we are the champions. You understand mm-hmm. who queen is. I you, think most, you pe- can
1: are- know the lyrics to Bohemian Rhapsody. Even if you've never actually listened actively to queen.
0: Yeah, because it, it's been in movies, it's been in commercials, that's on the radio all the time. So the way you're approaching it, I think, is the way most people in 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 the world would approach it as someone who's not very familiar with Zappa. So mm-hmm. I think I think you've got a very, I think you're the normal one in the mindset here.
1: And that being said, I don't know if this is necessarily the best style or best way to build a documentary for someone who is not already a fan. Um, Because I'll say, you know, watching this, it didn't really open me up to the music of Frank Zappa. It really didn't open me up to, you know, of of his hits that you may know already, introducing you to you know some of his hidden gem works it it goes into the mindset and the thinkings of frank zappa but at no point during this that i think oh this is making me want to go out and you know listen to frank zappa and and you know immerse myself into his music and and see more about him it was really just kind of like oh, okay that was frank zappa oh Sure, okay, that's fine. And it just, it really wasn't something that I think fit what I needed from it. And it would, but I did actively realize, okay, this is something Josh, I think, would really enjoy. Because it is the side of him that you don't necessarily see or would see from, like, a normal... I don't. How do I? How do I want to put that? Just uh, from listening to him, from learning about him, reading his Wikipedia page, necessarily, but it does give you a really cool perspective on his music.
0: You know, so that's what I, I have to say. I I feel so many of the exact same thoughts and and, and opinions as you. I'm I'm really glad this is this is where we're, we're kind of both at with it because I think we're going to get two sides of why this might not have been the best way to do this. Um, because for me. Now, look, I understand not everything can be set up in like a VH1 behind the music style setting because that's surface level by way of the music. But at the same time, this is a musician. And Mm -hmm. they didn't talk. I kept waiting for when I would get some of the, you know, the hit stuff just because I... Look, man, as much as we don't want to say Apostrophe is our favorite album, Apostrophe might not be my favorite album, but it's one of my favorite fucking albums. (laughs) Like of of any artist. I and they didn't they didn't talk about apostrophe. That's fucking weird. They I they kind of apostrophe is is like Zappa's mm. like breakout album. Where for 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 the ma- for the mainstream. Um okay. Yeah, it's it's a very famous album. Um they they mentioned Joe's Garage and they mentioned Shake Your Booty and that's kind of all that was there for that. And now, again, I I understand this can't just be a behind the music, but at the same time, there's got to be a balance in a musician's documentary between the man or men or woman or whomever, the musician that you're talking about and the actual thing that they put out. And I don't think that balance was necessarily there, not out of a mistake, but out of intention, which in some respects I really understand. And it did resonate with me in certain ways. I really enjoyed seeing more of the orchestral Frank Zappa and Frank Zappa has released several albums of his orchestral arrangements, um, as got shown somewhat in the documentary, but also earlier in his life than, than it showed. And at various other points, um, so, and seeing that side of him was really interesting, but I also did want to see the, you know, I wanted to see him make zoot Lords. and I wanted to see, uh, I wanted to hear more about the, the controversy surrounding leather. And I wanted to hear more about how he knew Captain Beefheart, which was so weird that they, like those two went to high school together and they just showed a couple stills of Beefheart on the screen. But if you don't know who Captain Beefheart is already, that meant nothing. Mm -hmm. Like, do you know who Captain Beefheart is?
1: is? And uh, I don't even know what you're talking about at this point.
0: Captain Beefheart was another like wacky '60s '70s musician. Um, His his two most famous albums are probably Trout Mask Replica and Safe as Milk, which, as you can get from those album names, are fucking weird. Um, And they showed the album artwork very briefly for Trout Mask Replica, which have fun. If you're going to start, start safe as milk. <laughs> Don't start with tribe master replica. It won't make sense. Um, and him and Zappa knew each other and, and, and Zappa actually produced a few of Beefheart's records, but they didn't mention that they just showed beef heart and Zappa being in the same room together. And that's okay. If there's just a little bit extra there and there wasn't, and that's, Because I think they're trying to make this very Zappa-centric, Zappa the man-centric. But we can't, we as Zappa fans, can only connect so much with the man without the music win and then you find the other things about that person that resonate with you or give you some ancillary reconnecting and that's as true with Zappa as it is with anybody else you know beyonce or, or or you know Taylor Swift or fucking whoever um and the music in it then it made it hard to connect at various points without having that like what timeline are we you hit on a lot of
1: points that i i you know personally thought of while watching this you know in the 60s starting up and then it seemed all of a sudden he was in the 80s and then it was kind of like the late 80s going into the 90s and for huge chunks of time it was like i don't know what the timeline is here i don't know how much time has passed like how long he was on tour with this first second or third iteration of mothers of invention i don't really know what to like how to mentally you know set this storyline because we sit here and we watch movies and we watch documentaries you know four five six times a week and that's how those narrative structures work you have timelines you have you know this overarching movement of time and that really wasn't something that was shown here um and it's weird like there's a going on with you know how this was so focused on these points and topics of discussion that you really would only understand the context for if you were a Zappa fan going in and watching this movie and not a fan wanting to learn more or learning about Frank Zappa in the first place. And that's why I think, you know, your comment on, oh, this is a, a love letter from a son to his father is is hitting the nail on the head uh, because it, it doesn't open up the world of Frank Zappa to those who are unfamiliar. It is just a perspective on Frank Zappa for those who appreciate him most and while right. there's definitely a place in you know pop culture and a place in media for those kind of documentaries it's definitely not what i was expecting here
0: no and and i i i think you're hitting the nail on the head with the whole um with the with the idea of uh, of this being a documentary for Damn, people who appreciate i know right for people who appreciate zap the most because if you appreciate zap already and you already have a good breadth of knowledge of who he was and what he did. Then focusing on things like the mainstream hits with, you know, apostrophe shake your booty and and um, fucking Joe's Garage isn't that interesting? Talking mm-hmm. about the 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 um, controversy with with the release of the album Leather isn't that interesting? Um, because those are very famous things in Zappa's life. Whereas things that aren't so famous, and this is the part of the film that I found kind of interesting but also again didn't show up to the film for was the end where they talk about zappa's political career And and
1: that was the first point during the movie where i genuinely cared really yeah like i i honestly caught myself just being like i really like we're talking about frank zappa being a workaholic and this like this and that and all these specific things where it's like okay like I don't know Frank Zappa, so like I can't really connect to this. I don't really understand the context of any of this. I don't even know his music. I don't know what his music really sounds like, other than those, you know, jam sessions it seemed like that he was performing in these underground garage venues. I couldn't connect to it. I couldn't really, you know, see through it. And then it wasn't until the political aspect of his life and the activism where that is something I can connect to on a a much closer level where I was like, oh wow, this is a Frank Zappa that is intriguing to me, that I want to know more and more about.
0: I I see. I, that's an interesting point. It is it is by far the most like. I know nothing about his music, but I know a thing about current events, and therefore I can connect with this moment most specifically. That does that does make sense. Is that how you approach Akanda? Yeah. 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 If you want. Um because so like the the one of the things that that bothered me Steve Vai is in the movie. Do you know who Steve Vai is?
1: Nah. Steve Vai, I remember him being the guy with the funny glasses.
0: Yes, yeah. Um he he was one of the greatest guitar players. He still still is. The man's still alive. He's, he's one of the greatest guitar players of all time. Um he he owned the 80s for um a large portion of like instrumental rock uh and, and instrumental metal he he has custom guitar on custom guitar he's he's also like the reason that that um trem bridges can go up as well as down because he tinkered with his own Ivanist to make it do that because he was annoyed it couldn't like um went to berkeley college of music like the whole nine he's a he's a really famous guitar player he was in the movie um crossroads with ralph macchio as the guitar player like he's a very well-known guitar player that was not mentioned. And the fact that the reason he's in the documentary is because Frank Zappa gave him his start is also not mentioned in the documentary. And again, I know that because I've heard Steve, I tell that story before, but Hmm. your average person doesn't know that. And it's also a really good story. It's a short story. It's literally, um, just cause I love this story. So, so Vi goes to audition for Zappa because as it mentioned in the documentary, Zappa would through three musicians a lot. He was a perfectionist uh, and he played a lot of weird shit that was very specific. And if you listen to Zappa stuff, even if you just listen to, again, I'm just going to keep mentioning apostrophe because it is a very good entry point. for A lot of people, you will immediately Vi to play a bunch of scales. And he was like, all right, you know, play me. Um you know, G Dorian in seven eight with a Caribbean uh, rhythm to it. Really specific shit. And I, one and Vi's nailing it because he's Steve Vi. And at one point he fucks something up. And Zappa just kinda st- stopped. If you need a job, Linda's holding auditions down the road and then just walked away. And he ended up calling by back, and that's a pretty insulting thing to say, not because Linda Ronstadt's a bad musician, because there's no good big guitar parts in the songs, uh, <laughs> but that story would help with Zappa. Um, and there's, there's just so many to talk about, or at least to mention, that just didn't get any... Any att- like Joe's garage? They didn't even show the cover of the album. Have you ever seen the cover of the album Joe's Garage? Nope. Google it right now. We will sit here and wait until Corwin pulls out the cover art album Joe's Garage. Okay. Joe. Um
1: uh, next to Paul's boutique. They on the same street?
0: No. Hmm. Hmm. Are you looking at it? Mm-hmm. Can you please describe what you're looking at?
1: Uh this is a side portrait of Frank Zappa holding a mop, staring into the camera uh wearing blackface.
0: Yes. Yeah. It is a very controversial cover art for an album. The entire album is full of shit like this. There is a lot to dissect there, which is again why I don't want to say this movie should have just been basically a VH1's behind the music because there is a different medium for that. But like this is who Zappa is. And this is what I wanted to come to. I wanted some more answers.
1: I have to imagine, just cutting in here, Go ahead. that this is more of a, I'm here to make a statement, and not necessarily, I'm here to make fun of black people.
0: <laughs> right. So, I mean... Joe's Garage came out at a point in time when, as seen in the documentary, Zappa was fighting over um censorship issues. And part of him being who he was as a man chose to be as controversial as he possibly could at this point in time. And this was part of it. The whole album is actually has an ongoing narration between song between certain songs. Um that where Zappa plays like a government official talking about how rock and roll is going to be the doom of society. Like it, it there's a lot in there that helps contextualize what is, again, a very controversial out al- piece of album art. Um and there's even more versions of it if you look up Joe's Garage, like act three or whatever, where Zappa is seen putting on the blackface. But like Zappa's music is very cryptic. In a lot of ways, it's very in your face as well. Like there's a lot of very bold assertions. Um, but they don't get into that at all. Like, like I want to know why Frank made Bobby Brown goes down. I understand it was a controversial song. It was one of the first, like mainstream songs, along with "Walk on the Wild Side" that talked about uh, transgender people. I want to know why that was on Zappa's mind. I is want to know Walk
1: on the Wild Side is Frank Zappa?
0: No, that's Lou Reed. Oh, okay. But they're the, 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 both it. their subject matter. That and uh, Lola also is about transgender people, but not but Walk on the Wild Side and, and Lola aren't nearly as in your face about it as Bobby Brown Goes Down is. Um Ah, eh, Lola actually kind of is too. But I I, I want to know because without it I get that Frank was a controversial dude, but without having some of that conversation around the music in that behind the scenes way, it doesn't feel like I'm getting every bit of juice out of this that I could be. And that makes it feel like it's missing something for me as a fan.
1: So you're saying we needed to juice the big screen.
0: (laughs) Fuck you. But that was good.
1: Oh man, I'm never gonna uh, recover from that because that's my peak.
0: It kind of is, yeah. <sighs> I don't know. It was uh it was cool seeing uh, seeing Hendrix there for uh, for we're only in it for the money. Um,
1: I'm going to be cool honest. I don't remember seeing Jimi Hendrix in this.
0: Yeah, yeah. Jimi Hendrix was on uh, the the shoot for "We're Only in It for the Money."
1: Hmm. Okay. I um, guess I. Uh, I... I don't know. I don't know uh where I was during that, but apparently not here.
0: Yeah. Well, Hendrix was into some weird shit, you know. Like Hendrix was is such a great what if for music because he was he was right about to be a part of um Miles Davis's crew for um he was supposed to be the guitarist on Bitches Brew, uh, which basically would have put him in Weather Report, wow. which I can't imagine Weather Report with both Jaco Pastorius and Jimi Hendrix. It's like too much for my brain to fucking handle. Mm-hmm. Um and he was also by extension into um into Frank Zappa as well. Um, also shout out there's a great Jaco Pastorius documentary on Hulu for anyone who hasn't who wants to learn more about Jocko. Uh, but it was cool seeing some of the Beatles in this with with, with you, know, you know John Lennon and, and Yoko Ono, who I know isn't a Beatle, but you know, it's cool seeing her in this too. It's cool seeing Lenny Bruce in this. Like that's what I'm saying, there was a lot of like passing moments of greatness in here that it felt like the movie didn't focus on. Which, again, I can understand to certain degrees because it's like if you are a Zappa fanatic, like you probably already know a lot of this stuff. I didn't know some of this stuff because uh, I'm not so, so deep as, as others may be. But it, it, I would have liked to see more of it, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I would have liked to see more of, uh, you know, either maybe behind the scenes stuff of the music itself, which granted, that was a fairly large chunk. So I guess a different style of behind the scenes. I don't know. Uh, it's just, it wasn't for me because I was not a Frank Zappa fan. I didn't know who Frank Zappa was. I still kind of don't know who Frank Zappa was. Um, but I will say work he did in Czechoslovakia, the work he did, you know, at home about, you know, the rights for, uh, independent artists and with record companies, that's all stuff that I I really did appreciate and love learning about. But, you know, musically, uh, Frank Zappa is just kind of, you know, still that just a guy.
0: Yeah, um it's a shame they really could have talked about more, they showed like like they showed Frank Zappa using a uh, um a synclavier and they don't mention that he was like one of the first dudes to use one. He was one of the first dudes to own one. And one of the reasons mm-hmm. that there was a there was a passing moment in the concert that they showed at the beginning where he talked about where he said uh this is the first time I've had a reason to play my guitar in 3 years, um which is also an, an interesting Uh, Tibbet, which is obviously true he said it um but uh in large part because he was becoming one of the first like big synthesizer users and really did a lot of work experimenting with electronic music and electronics in music um and became something of a mildly a pioneer on that front uh that also just didn't fucking get mentioned like at all um it's just such a weird documentary.
1: I feel like a documentary miniseries almost would have been better suited.
0: Yeah, yeah, probably. Because
1: um, there's just so many facets to Frank Zappa that they just kind of were like, "It's the thing. Here he is. We're not going to go any further."
0: Yeah, and I get it's tough because, like, as they showed at the end of the of the documentary, Frank Zappa had 62 studio albums. And then an additional 55, 53, 53 53 other albums that came out posthumously um, in, in addition to his compilation albums, um, some unreleased material, like a couple more sets of Joe's garage stuff and a bunch of, uh, just a bunch of other shit that he did, like getting, getting into all of it would have been fucking impossible. So I, I get not wanting to go so strictly, but at the same time, I mean, there's room but yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, all right. Well, I guess we'll move to Final Razor and so we can move on to our other film of the day. Uh, this is my yep. movie, so I'll start. Uh, unless, Corin, did you have anything else to say?
1: Uh, let me just double check my notes if my phone will decide to turn on. Let's see. Uh,
0: no. All right. Well, I guess that's that. Um, yeah. We talked about my points. Yeah. This, if. If you are a Zappa person or a, see, see, that's the thing i i would I would like lightly recommend this, but I wouldn't strongly recommend this. You'd either have to be really interested in learning more about the man, which would involve you knowing who he was, which if you knew who he was, this may or may not be the documentary for you. I don't know yeah. um yeah. like i don't I don't dislike this. I do still like it. I did still learn stuff and come away with something of a better understanding of where he was. I really enjoyed the scenes where he was conducting the, uh, the like the the young um, orchestra of, of, of Zappa fans, and you know it was cool seeing him interact with music fans in that way, as well as musicians, and be kind of the the teacher guy. But at the same time, that's not necessarily what I came in for. So Mm -hmm. out of five, I'll probably give this a three, maybe three and a half. Now I'm going to stick to three. I, I, I liked it. I would lightly recommend it. I didn't love it and I won't strongly recommend it, but it's not, but it's not bad. So I'm yeah, I'm going in the middle here. I'm going three.
1: Yeah. uh, I got to give it a two and a half just because I, I have to come in from the perspective of not knowing Frank Zappa and this being my first introduction to him. And it just doesn't do a, a good enough job of, of giving you that entry-level, you know, Zappa 100-level class. Um, and it touches on some really important and some really, really interesting topics uh, and, you know, a deep dive into who F- Zappa was but it is a tough documentary to to really just kind of jump into blind. Um and I just don't think it was structured and established in a way that uh allowed for that understanding or that introduction to happen. Uh so two and a half for me.
0: You know, it it's really interesting. Um because I, I also just watched a documentary on also on Amazon Prime, but this one was included. I'd have to pay for it. Um about Iggy Pop, as directed by Jim Jarmusch, which I was really hmm. excited for because I like Iggy Pop enough, um, and, I, and I like and I like Jim Jarmusch, um, and it was not good. <laughs> it was not good. You know why? I knew it wasn't going to be good for the in the first two minutes of the documentary because you know what happened. What? Jim Jarmusch was sitting down with Iggy Pop to start the, the interview, and he introd Iggy Pop um, to seemingly nobody. To like two Iggy pop. It was very odd. And he was like, and now we're gonna start our interview with uh the the greatest rock and roll musician of all time, Iggy Pop. And I went, because mm. oh. that's not what I want either. You know? No. Like, documentary, this is our first documentary we've done on the show, first of all. Um, and I, I'm glad we had plenty to say about it because sometimes certain documentaries can be tough to drum up enough things to say if you just sat there learning the whole time uh, or not learning anything um, but I, I in my in my mind you shouldn't have needed any introduction to this to get a lot of sense out of who Zappa was the same way I shouldn't have needed to know who Iggy Pop was to get anything out of that Jim Jarmusch documentary which I'm not sure anybody would have gotten anything out of that Jim Jarmusch documentary about Iggy Pop because it just was not well made um, or the interviews were not I, I don't think squeezed as much juice out of them as they really could have um because it was too fan oriented and because this zappa documentary seemed a little bit too family oriented in terms of the viewpoints that they were coming from and i want something that is cold-blooded i want something that is external very third party
1: unbiased you That's- know you want you want the unbiased you want the good and the bad you want to see the full picture you don't want to see iggy pop's my favorite rock band of all time or artist of all time i wanna tell everybody how good he is, how cool this guy is, how how awesome he is. And that's just that doesn't make for a good documentary.
0: Yeah, and I, I was thinking while I was watching it about um the the Fred Rogers documentary that came out last mm-hmm. year, I think. Um and the guy that made that.
1: Will you be my neighbor?
0: No, that was that was the Tom Hanks movie that came out. I don't remember what the documentary was called.
1: Mr. Rogers Neighborhood.
0: Maybe that sounds right. Um, it was it was a really good documentary. And the guy that made it, I was listening to an interview afterwards, he said he was in he was That's going to make good show. show that oh that is the name of the show um, <laughs> he the, the guy who made the documentary was going to make a documentary about Yo-Yo Ma, who appears in the documentary about Franks um not for example, about uh, Fred Rogers. and Yo-Yo Ma told him you should make a documentary about Fred Rogers. And then he started making a documentary about Fred Rogers. That that doesn't mean he wasn't already a Mr. Rogers fan or any of that shit or didn't know anything about Mr. Rogers. But I like the idea that I'm coming to this and I'm going to do a bunch of research and I'm going to be more of a journalist than anything else with it. Um, and that the inspiration to do it kind of came also from a... Th- it's like doing a double blind study for what I'm going to be doing a documentary on. I didn't come up with this idea. I don't know where I'm going to go with it yet. I'm going to do all my research. I'm going to you know write it all out and then see where it goes from there instead of approaching it where it's like, I'm a fan and I know this, this, and this, or I'm a family member and I know this, this, and this, and I'll fill in the gaps as I see fit. You gotta, I think you gotta be a reporter more than anything else.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But, so, right. Won't You Be My Neighbor
1: is the documentary. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood is the Tom Hanks film.
0: Thank you for that clarification. Yes. All right, shall we go into your film? Sure. All right. So now next up on the docket we got 19 2019's uh film 1917. Fuck this. Um it was uh directed by Sam Mendes. It was written by Sam Mendes and Christy Wilson Cairns. C-A-R-N-S? C-A-I-R-N-S? Cairns, Carns. I'm I'm sorry, Cindy. Or Christy. I don't I don't know. Um, it stars Dean Charles Chapman, George McKay, and Daniel Mays. Um, it had an estimated budget of $95 million and a cumulative worldwide gross of $385 million. So that is a success. Um, it's tagline is time is the enemy. I don't mind that. I think I actually like that. Um short, sweet, to the point. We get it. Yeah. Uh, it sorry, it won uh, three Oscars on the back of, She's uh, two, four, six, seven, ten nominations. It won for Roger Deakins' A Boy, uh, Best Achievement in Cinematography. It also won for Best Achievement in Visual Effects for Guillaume Rocher- Rocheron, uh, Greg Butler, and Dominic tu- Tuoy. Um, It won for Best Achievement in Sound Mixing for Mark Taylor and Stuart Wilson. It was also nominated for, and there's a lot of people that share these nominations, so sorry to these people if they ever listen to the show. I'm not going to read all the names just for time. But it was nominated for Best Picture of the Year, Best Achievement in Directing, Best Original Screenplay, Best Achievement in Makeup and Hairstyling, Best Achievement in Production Design, Best Achievement in Music Written for Motion Pictures, Original Score, and Best Achievement in Sound Editing is about... On April sixteenth, 1917, as a regiment assembles to wage war deep in enemy territory, two soldiers are assigned to race against time to deliver a message that will stop 1,600 men from walking straight into a deadly trap. Corwin, this was your film. Tell us your thoughts.
1: Yeah, so uh, contrary to what I thought going into this, this is not a prequel to the 2012 apocalyptic film. Um, So pretty happy with how it turned out. Good movie. Um, but in all seriousness, <laughs> this was my number two film in 2019. Uh, my, my, I did a ranking for all the films I watched in 2019. And, and this was in that top tier with Parasite and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, so I was super excited to finally go back and watch this you know, in 4K um, and really be able to experience it and see the, the technical side of this and, and dig deep into that kind of thing those kind of things, excuse me. And man, I love this. Uh, It's still such a tremendously exciting film to watch, something that is, I would describe more of as an experience than I would a, you know, a narrative story. And I don't think that should be held as, you know, something you hold against this because of just how, I don't want to use this term because of how it's used or, you know, how it's thought of, but it's, it's epic. It's an epic film and it's not necessarily an epic in the way we normally talk about films being, you know, this adventure, three hour long film, but it's still a two hour film about this cross country adventure with incredibly high stakes. And it's an just incredible story all around. I love this film. Um, and seeing something that was shot in such a unique way where it is a, at least portrayed to be a single continuous shot is, uh, is a great experience. So big fan of this. I'm excited to talk about it.
0: Yeah, this is, this is a very memorable modern war film. Um, I, I remember it was joked about at the time it came out, which is literally only like one year ago, that it's, it's a movie for your dad that you'll like to, um, um, and I think this really shows how much room there still is for war movies. Now, when we look at war movies from, you know, anywhere between like the 30s and 60s, a lot of it is like, hey, here's all those guys at war. Remember John Wayne from the South? He's at war now. <laughs> like, and it's just, it's just fighting in wars. And those were good movies, but those are done. We, we are done with those movies. If you were to make another one of those movies, it would be a, a movie we've all seen before. No one would care. This, I I think, does a really good job of showing, hey, there is room in the war film genre to not just focus on stories untold, which, again, is something we've been spending a lot of time with, but also to have flexibility to have, be creative in the technical aspects of how we're going to make it. and. They really executed on that. The acting in this film is fine. The storyline is acceptable. <laughs> um all that shit is a okay. What really brings you into this film is how it's made and using the the war background as a very engaging um kind of uh, uh guiding plot towards really what is the star of the film the filmmaking yeah. and it does both, being an effective war film and being an effective vehicle for filmmaking ingenuity, really, really well. Um, that's why yeah. it's a move for your dad yeah. because there's war. It's a movie for everybody else too because it really shows. It it like it's fun sitting there like when did they cut and and you know picking apart all of the little technical details of that went into this. It it's really well made. It's one
1: of those movies too where i know if i sat my dad down and said hey i have a good war movie for us to watch he'd be like oh yeah absolutely let's watch it i don't know if he would notice that it's a single continuous shot or you know presented to be one because it's a war dad movie he's just going to watch it like any other movie and not necessarily notice and i think that's why it works so well is because it's not shoved in your face like you and i keep talking about it because of the technical achievement that it is as film reviewers as people who are so appreciative and you know quote unquote inside the know for you know films that come out every year you know this is stuff we nerd out on and obsess over but if someone was just watching this they wouldn't be you know it wouldn't be something forced upon them and it's like oh like i don't really care for this or like i don't why why are they doing this whatever like why are, why is it set up why is the camera just following them the whole time it's still an incredibly enjoyable movie without that it's just for those who do notice and appreciate it it adds this entire extra layer that is just just adds just an insurmountable amount to the enjoyment factor of it
0: yeah uh, very, very, all very praise much.
1: to Robert Deakins, man. I love that man.
0: I know. I'm, and how how much of a of a crazy feeling it must be for him to not win an Oscar for cinematography for like nineteen fucking years, and then to win it in back to back years.
1: He started being he started cinematography as like the cinematographer for feature films. His first feature film was 1977. The year the first Star Wars movie came out and did not win until twenty seventeen.
0: Yeah, his his first nomination for the for the Oscar was in nineteen ninety five for Shawshank Redemption, and then he did mm-hmm. not win fucking until Blade Runner twenty forty nine two years ago. It's just
1: crazy. Do you know the the film he was uh uh the first director of photography for? Uh
0: no. What was it? Nineteen
1: eighty four.
0: Really? Yeah.
1: In nineteen eighty four.
0: That is a very sad movie.
1: It is. Yes. I prefer the book. Like all books made into movies.
0: I don't know. That's actually a really good movie. Um I'm not gonna say I prefer it over the book, but it is actually it is a really good fucking movie. Anyway, yeah. um So I'm I almost really... upset
1: that nineteen seventeen didn't come out in twenty seventeen. I'm not. Yeah.
0: Uh.
1: (laughs) But I will say, before we move on from Roger Deakins, he is one of, like, we all have our favorite directors, like, you know, Quentin Tarantino, Christopher Nolan, Alejandro Verlenoe. Like, if they put out a movie, I'm seeing it opening night, regardless of what it is, unless it's Tenant because there's a pandemic. I'm going to be there opening night. I'll probably see it in theaters two or three times. The only, you know, cinematographer who has that same weight with me is roger deacons and i will see any movie roger deacons puts out until he stops making movies like that's the kind of weight he carries
0: Uh, yeah i just love him so much i know he's not dude he's the fucking best and it makes me sad he's not working on anything right now but i can i can i can
1: he is actually
0: he is what's he working on he
1: is an animated movie called vivo
0: really Mm -hmm. um Uh, So they get tasked on on, on going over to find the guy's brother and to let them know that the Germans abandoned the front that they're currently sitting at and have moved to the front that this guy's brother is going to be at leading a charge to in anticipation of that charge. So uh, it needs to be stopped so that they don't lose a bunch of guys. Um, And it feels pretty Saving Private Ryan-ish where it's like, hey, here's a loosely believable reason for why you need to go find this guy. Go ahead. Um, and I, I, I'm not saying it detracts or anything. I'm just wondering how much of it, how much you often, if at all, thought of it while it was happening.
1: Uh, what do you mean, thought of the story itself? Yeah. Um, I would say it. it it's definitely something that you know. Obviously, you think about it because it's it's there. It's you know, it's it's the driving factor. It's you know, the MacGuffin have you of you know delivering this message um i wouldn't necessarily say it's something i would i think it's fully believable where you know world war one especially you have cut phone lines you have cut uh, uh communication lines which happens often you're sending a small team that can move quickly it's believable. I can't say I know enough about the inner workings of communication and uh, messengers in World War One to say with a, a, a level of confidence whether or not it is or is not historically accurate. But I have no issue with the idea that, okay, sending two guys across lands that they can physically see is is, you know, no longer the front lines should be unguarded this and that wouldn't be so out there. So I can believe it it wasn't something that I really focused on significantly throughout. Um but, you know, I I hold nothing against it.
0: Yeah, I I don't either. I'm more of a just I guess a, a query. I I know that the plot of this film is based large, or to some extent, upon um, Sam Mendes, the director's uh, grandfather's actual life. Um, apparently he was like really short, like 5,4. Um, and he was the guy that like did the message running um, whenever lines were down, because in, on the battlefield in, in Europe, um, I guess it was very foggy in, in the mornings. Um, and fog at, at, in, in these places in Europe, you know France and Germany specifically, could be up to six feet tall and he was five four so he could just apparently run through the fog and largely go unnoticed. Um, hmm. So that's where the plot of the film comes from and to some extent some of the other events apparently. Uh, but I also think it benefits from the fact that it doesn't get brought up a lot. the plot. Because that's one of the things that is, I think, kind of annoying about Saving Private Ryan is that everyone on the mission seems to know how stupid the mission is. Like every now and then they'll bring up a point about like this dude better be grateful or whatever, and it and it's like, oh yeah, they're going go spending eight money? a
1: bus to save one of him. Like, how does that make sense? How does that yeah. make that? Happen?
0: And the thing is, it doesn't. It's a stupid plot for yeah. a movie. The army found out that there's one of five brothers. Sons died, and is sending the fifth home before his mother finds, or some, before his mother gets too sad. Like, why? How do you like find out?
1: That is real. Like that is how that was done. That is completely historically accurate in that regard. Where, you know, the five—I forget the name of the 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 brothers—the five brothers who were killed after serving on, um, the same ship. In World War II, um, it was the five Sullivan brothers uh, who died aboard the USS Juno. Um, the idea that an entire family could be wiped off the face of the earth, an entire family's you know, lineage is halted because of a single ship sinking or a, a single army company, you know, going into battle and and losing all five of these soldiers at once. Like that is such a, a detriment to morale that they split it up. And this was accurate where they went out of their way to keep it so that these families could stay together to, you know, the highest chance of that happening. So I get that. But I also get that to a bunch of low level enlisted soldiers in World War II after landing on normandy beach, you know, omaha beach. <laughs> that sounds fucking stupid as all hell and that's how it works. you know, you get orders you from your perspective in the dirt in the mud in the sand think that's ridiculous why are you sending us on this stupid mission when there's other people that could do this, there's better ways to do this what have you? that's the way it works. um so i get that and this this feels a little different because it's not, okay, we're going to send this squad of guys to go, you know, keep, take this one guy home so, it, you know, his mother isn't left with no family, their family lineage isn't stopped. Okay. It's like, oh, no, we're going to send two guys across what is believed to be the former front lines of the German army to stop 1,600 men from being sent to their deaths. That's a little bit farther of a stretch just because of the the numbers, but it does make for a a very compelling story uh, in this instance.
0: Yeah, I, I don't disagree with the idea of, you know, it happened, so we're presenting it. I think my thing with it is it's ridiculous whether it happened or not, and you continuously bringing it up brings away, takes away a little bit of the weightiness of the film because it's ludicrous even though yes it did happen and Mm -hmm. this i don't think falls quite into that because it's like it's like man like i get i get that saving private ryan to some extent happened but holy shit the army sending a kid home because his mom's really sad about his brothers dying believable happened sounds crazy Mm -hmm. um and same thing, this way more believable 1917 is a year, as well as the name of this film. Phone lines were pretty new. <laughs> like, it's not a huge shock that they would get cut in battle. Um, but I I think it benefits from the fact that it's not constantly brought up through either bitching or explaining. Because That's then incredible. it really feels like that adventure. You know what I mean?
1: You You know what the stakes are. The stakes are so clearly stated. Hey, you need to get to this point by this time, or sixteen hundred men are going to die. That's it. Those are the facts of the case. It you do it or you don't. That's the way it is. Right. And the stakes and- are so monumental. You don't need this, you know, exposition when, you know, Schofield wakes up after getting knocked out and hitting his head on the stairs. You don't need, oh my God, it's almost morning. I need to stop the attack. You know when he wakes up in a panic that it's the middle of the night now. It's almost morning. You know that he is running out of time and needs to get going because of the stakes at hand. You don't need to have him bickering with, um, oh, what was his, what was, um, it was Schofield and Blake. You don't need to have him and Blake arguing at some point, you know, after that initial confrontation. Because the stakes are stated. You know what they are as the viewer. You know these two guys know what the stakes are. You know. And I think that you know. I've heard people say like oh. So it just so happens that. They're sending the brother of one of the officers. You know like oh so you. Have this emotional connection. Well it's like. Well obviously you're going to send someone. Who has a, a close personal investment to this. Because you're sending two men. Across no man's land you know several miles in a short amount of time where there's no time for them to wait there's no time for them to to worry about this you need to make sure that they are going to get this done and having that motivation of hey do this or your brother's gonna die is a pretty like you see it like blake is nipping at the heels trying to get across no man's land as soon as possible no you know thinking of strategy no thinking of this and that he just is you know a dog in hunt you know in a hunt
0: yeah uh-huh. and and again i think that's one of the filmmaking notes that that really strengthens this film a worse version of this film would have uh lance corporal schofield you know ch- chattering on to himself throughout the entirety of it after after blake dies which we'll talk about soon at some point too um constantly mumbling about how little time he has left or how much time he has left or how terrible things are whatever, um, to help convey to the audience how much time there is, when this film didn't need it. It kept pace up the whole way through which is very impressive for a film that is two hours long to constantly have this churn of things happening that have varying degrees of tension all while conveying the underlying stakes and internal tension that Schofield is feeling because he needs to complete his mission that is time-sensitive. And it's a note that, again, high-level dad thinking might not get just because we're in this for the blood and the guts, but really does add to that greater enjoyment of the film when you don't have to focus on things like shitty exposition or you know John Wayne grumbling to himself in that rooster cogburn voice about how you know these sons of bitches are keeping me from getting there with enough time or i got to stop my brother from getting killed by the i guess they weren't nazis yet they were just the germans but regardless it's it's just another way to show how much thought was put into each individual fucking scene of this thing to give it mm-hmm. to keep dialogue from happening which really matters here
1: yes it's we've mentioned this before and we talk about this a fair amount of narrative needing to be shown not told and this i think is a perfect uh example of it because there is a fair amount of exposition in this you know at major points but at no point would I say this is being, you know, force-fed story-wise to you. This is just a a very well-created story that is also incredibly simple. And it doesn't require a ton of explanation. It doesn't require a ton of exposition. You know the stakes. You know what needs to be done. You know how this needs to be handled and the actions that need to be taken. You know the what needs to be done to move forward and what's going to stop them from being held back it's It's very well done exactly I knew this, but again
0: no it it it's still it's always worth repeating um you want to talk about the uh the 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 Blake death scene since I brought it up uh sure because it's it's a hell of a death scene absolutely. I I think it's one of the most, if not the most, um, haunting war death scenes I've ever seen because of how intensely realistic it is. Yeah. At least from, from what I can only surmise based on how they, they performed it. It is, I, I mean, my God, it is chilling. Mm-hmm. Um, because for in, in one sense, you know, you get the emotional aspect of it, a man is dying, you get the secondary emotional aspect of it, which is he will not get to go be a part of saving his brother to keep his brother from dying. Uh, and third, you get the emotional part of it, which is, well, now I'm thinking about dying, and that looks horrible. Um, and, it's, and there's, it's,
1: so- there's not many movie death scenes where you watch the life leave someone's body in a way that's not just like a dramatic closing of the eyes or, you know, a last breath leaving of the literal blood leaving their face and you see, you know, death encapsulate someone. Oh, it is incredibly graphic. Not in a, in a, 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 a graphic, gory way, just the reality of the situation.
0: Yeah, because in a lot of other war movies, you know, as I always say, in a worse version of this movie, um, this scene would be, you know, partly a very saving Private Ryan scene where you get Blake holding in his guts, you know, mm-hmm. talking about how he misses his mother or some shit like that, which I'm not saying wouldn't be impactful. It's just that we've seen that. That's a different movie. Um, or you get- <laughs> yeah, literally. Or you get the very 1960s way of dying where they just kind of die. Like, very fast. Like, way too fast. Um, And you're not quite sure if there was blood, and if there is, there's not usually enough of it, and it's kind of weird. But this was... Not only was it paced out brutally, it also included Blake's realization of his fate. And that's what made it, I think, especially daunting mm-hmm. is because at first he gets up, he walks, he gets stabbed in the gut. He gets up and walks away. And you, I, I remember the first time I saw, it, I think, Oh shit, that's going to make this journey a lot harder. Thinking that like, he's going to live. And right. then the blood comes and then he has the realization. Then the pain kicks in after the adrenaline for a little bit. And, and, and Scofield can't carry him because it hurts too much. Not just his own strength. And then the realizations really set in that this is where he's going to die. And-, and
1: and the thing for me was him realizing, okay, he still has to keep going. And he still has to save my brother. He still has to save all of these men, these 1,600 men. Okay, here's, you know, take this, keep going, you know, leave me, this, that. It's tough. It, it is a really tough scene to watch, especially with... How the film was advertised, how this was shown to be, you know, a Charles Dean Chapman, or Dean Charles Chapman, excuse me, starred film. He was the main character. He was the person throughout this entire right. Like this was his role. This is he was advertised as the main character. And you know, George McKay was kind of like the buddy. And you know, even the interviews I've listened to leading up to the release of the film before I had seen it, George McKay really wasn't included. It was Dean Charles Chapman. And so 20 minutes into the movie, when the main character dies, it's that extra added level of just weight that's just pressing down on you like, oh my God. How is this going to keep going? Like, how is this going to be accomplished? You know, how is Sh- uh, Schofield going to be able to do this on his own without the main character? And it's it adds so much to it where it's not like the climactic action where he dies, you know, in a heroic action. He dies, allowing Schofield to keep going. You know, it's not this sacrifice. It's. Oh they were saving an enemy soldier from wreckage trying to get him some water. Oh he gets stabbed. He's dead. They're only 200 yards, 300 yards away from where they started. You know, they have so much longer on this journey to go and how is it going how is it going to happen? It adds so much doubt to will this will this be successful?
0: It really does, and I, I, you know, in addition to the logistics, the the emotion of, for Schofield now, who has to not just continue plotting out the rest of this journey, but, but also having to, to bear the emotional weight of his, watching his friend die in a, in a rather altruistic um, manner, or at least uh, under, under an attempt to be an altruistic person, and attempting to save his friend, or to save a, save a, an enemy combatant. Um, mm-hmm. To so really, just fan the flames of of, of uh, sadness here, but it, yeah, it is, and it it really does such a wonderful job increasing the stakes for you as the viewer, because now another thing to depart. To, to I don't mean to be shitting on Saving Private Ryan here. It's a really fucking good movie.
1: It's I one of the best films ever made. Yeah, you know, like, like it's
0: I don't, I don't mean to make these setups to make it sound like it's a bad movie. I just am wanting to separate it from war movies. And that's just the one that's on my mind. Um, mm-hmm. But where it separates and does something different from Saving Private Ryan is that now getting to place X, you know, is not just about saving the soldiers. It's now, and it's not just about saving this dude's brother. It's now a mission to make that death of his friend mean something. And that is seen, you know, in part because of the urgency, which can be extrapolated out to the time sensitive things that we brought up and, you know, all those things, but also add something to you, the viewer, you know, it's now more important for me, Josh watching the movie to get that, Sense of satisfaction in that release to see Schofield save all those troops to avenge that death than it did just on the outset of having a really epic war adventure. You know, it it really adds to the stakes for me, the viewer as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Overall, which do you prefer?
0: It's tough to say, um, because in a lot of ways I see this as like the smaller Saving Private Ryan. Right. Um. Even though it's not quite kind of the silly. ensemble cast. Yeah, it, it's you know more sparsely cast, just fewer actors. Um, and it feels like there's. I know it sounds so stupid to say. It feels like there's less going on, but there is somehow in a ninety-five million dollar movie less going on. Um, than right. there is in Saving Private Ryan. It's a little bit quieter. Which
1: you, they're I not think going I, battle to battle.
0: Right. You know? Right. Um. So. I think I would say this uh, could be a healthy dose of recency bias. But um cuz I've seen Saving Private Ryan a million fucking times and I've seen sure. this twice. Mm-hmm. But I would be tempted to say this.
1: Yeah, it's it's really a different style where, you know, it's Saving Private Ryan is a a larger squad, like a full squad of soldiers fighting their way across Europe because they have the size and armament to do so. Whereas, 1917 is two men sneaking across Europe because they each have, <laughs> they each have five rounds of ammunition. They have one grenade and one flare. Like it's not something that they can have a fight and keep going. You know, they have extremely limited resources to do so. You know, Saving Private Ryan. You know, they have uh, a. They have a bar automatic weapon, they have a Thompson machine gun, like they have squad weapons to fight German, um, fixed positions. You know, like they rush a machine gun nest, and while taking a casualty in uh, the medic, they win, like they can succeed in doing so. (laughs) You know, Schofield runs out of ammunition and just has to leave his rifle because he has no other choice. You know, it's a very different style movie. So obviously, you know the the breakdown and how they go about um, facing the situations is very different. It is incredibly difficult to sit here and compare the two and decide which I prefer. Um, man, it's tough because I feel story wise, I would I would definitely have to pick Saving Private Ryan. Maybe it's because I've seen it so many times and and have loved it for so many years. Um compared to you know a movie I, I now have seen twice. But I mean technically I would take nineteen seventeen hands down. So I'm gonna be a, a little bitch and just say it's a draw for right now and let future Corwin decide uh you know five years down the road, which is holds up longer, holds up better.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. The, fact
1: that, the fact that they're being able to held in the same company you know, held in the same regard is monumental though.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, this, this is an instant classic, honestly. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, I don't mean that lightly. this is, this is a, this movie will, will not just be a movie that didn't win best picture. the year it was nominated. This is, this is a, such a well put together film.
1: Right. Well, I mean, I was honestly very cautiously pessimistic about this film going into it because I, you know, I've I've stated this many times. I love war movies. It's my favorite genre. It's something I, you know, grew up adoring, um, and would watch as much as I could. And one where the gimmick going into seeing it for the first time was, oh, it's going to be a single shot, and it's like, all right, it was this fucking Sam Mendes guy think he is like he's no fucking Alfred Hitchcock he can't make a movie in a single shot like he made what one pretty okay James Bond movie and now he's going to try and be Alfred fucking Hitchcock like get the fuck out of here that being said it was fantastic and um I'm really excited to see where he goes from there um but what a tremendous movie all around
0: I I am so disappointed in the fact that you think of sam mendez as the guy that made skyfall or specter whichever one you thought of
1: well he made both yeah
0: but th- first of all he made jarhead which you said is one of your favorite war films
1: absolutely but it's he a made american beauty which i know kevin
0: spacey is is what he is but american beauty is one of the you know i love that movie, I love that movie. road to perdition which is a really great movie never seen it the fact that you haven't seen Sam Mendes' films is on you. <laughs> listen,
1: listen. I'm trying to make a point here, all right. And he made one very good and one pretty okay James Bond movie in the past couple years. Jarhead came out 20 years ago and is something I love, but so many other people are just kind of like meh. That was the whole like point of like point of contention when we reviewed Jarhead.
0: I know, but it's one oh of my your God, favorite like a, movies. And you can not even think that
1: he directed it. I'm not saying I didn't think he directed it. I'm saying that was what was talked about when this movie came out, before I had seen it. All right. Sam Mendes isn't known for directing Jarhead. He's known for those two James Bond movies.
0: I will accept this. This is true. People are always known for their biggest budget film. <sighs> um i don't have much else to say on this
1: um i have a few very few notes of just like things i thought about while watching um but no other like overarching discussion points
0: well let's hear what you got
1: um the first one i have was how as soon as they get their you know their orders they get their you know equipment and they set off Blake is just sprinting through the trenches. He's, you know, clearly taking lead. Schofield is very going in how Schofield has combat experience, has seen battle before. Blake wasn't there and doesn't have that experience. So Blake is rushing into this. Schofield is being very, very cautious and trying to think rationally about, you know, the safest way not the best way but the safest way for them to go about doing this but as soon as they get to the front lines as soon as they you know meet up with andrew scott um and are at the point where you know they're seeing impact craters from artillery they're seeing you know the front lines where these guys have seen combat recently he instantly takes the lead jumps in front of blake and is you know coaching him along and how to you know get through this and it's not something that's really brought to the forefront of attention that oh he's now taking charge here but being the one who has been you know mentioned to some point being the experienced one who has seen combat he is just naturally taking charge and and they have that almost rapport or you know that understanding of like okay he knows what he's doing more than i do i'm going to follow his lead i think that's something that was just Very well, you know, that was a very well directed aspect of this. Um, And that being said, for being a guy who directed two, you know, pretty okay James Bond movies, Sam Mendes blew this out of the water with how well it was directed. You know, (sighs) if Parasite and Bong Joon-ho didn't come out in 2019, he would have been the runaway, almost unanimous favorite to win. Best director and best picture here.
0: Okay, interesting thought. Not sure. Well, who,
1: Not, huh? Who would you say otherwise?
0: Um, uh, what'd you say?
1: Tarantino. Would that be your favorite?
0: No, I probably would have gone Taika Waititi. Hmm.
1: Why? I know this is going on a tangent, but...
0: Uh, I I mean, did you see Jojo Rabbit? Mm-hmm. That, that movie. better
1: than uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood.
0: Oh, I absolutely did. Really? Yeah.
1: Is that because of how much you love Jojo Rabbit or how meh you thought Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was? Because I know I am very much in the top 1% of people who love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood.
0: Oh, no, I loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I just also really love Jojo Rabbit.
1: That's fair. Um, This is the point where I do mention that I, I very much am torn between Hollywood and Pulp Fiction for being my favorite Quentin Tarantino movie. Like, that's how much I love that movie.
0: Okay. That's fair. It's fair. It's a really Uh, fucking good movie.
1: Oh, God. It's probably the only film I've seen where I can, like, tangibly tell that I enjoy it more each time I watch it. I've probably seen it, like, five times now, which is crazy for a movie that came out last year. But every time I watch it, I can clearly think, like, ah, that was better than the last time I watched it.
0: I mean, there's, but, there's a lot to get into it. We're going to have to pick it at some point.
1: But, I uh... would not be against it. Um, um, I mentioned the, you know, leaving his rifle after he runs out of ammo, fires off the five shots. Um, when he cut his hand on the barbed wire and then instantly shoved it into a rotting corpse. I instantly was like, oh my god, that's he's gonna die. Like that's gonna be something that becomes a major plot point down the road. And I don't know if it was meant to be a, a bit of misdirection, but it really wasn't anything that mattered after that point. Like he he clearly had an injured hand and and you know, I did pay attention, you know, the second watch through of how he wouldn't use the hands for, you know, putting pressure on it or wouldn't um use the hand really for anything other than the bare minimum, but it, it wasn't something that was uh affecting of their journey in any major way. Which I thought it would be. Right. Um and then the last one I had was how I really, really love how the it's a circular narrative where the opening shot of the film is Blake and Schofield waking up under the tree. Um, and the final scene, the cut to credits is Schofield falling asleep up against the tree in the same position um, that the movie started in. And I just love that.
0: It was, it was a very, very fitting or um, emotionally satisfying ending to watch. I completely agree.
1: Um, I'm now trying to find articles discussing his infected hand.
0: Well, do you have any notes uh, already on deck or shall we move towards that, wrapping it up? That was the last of my notes. Uh, yeah, because we're like an hour and a half in. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So uh, give me a final rating and review then, I guess
1: um man uh you know i have really been torn about what i want to give this film um you know it's it's hard to give something that is so recent um and hasn't really had to stand up to the passing of time you know a really great score but i I really have no complaints of this film you know even though it, it wasn't my favorite of 20 excuse me 2019 it's in you know a class of its own and and i think 2019 films are are going to go down as you know one of the best years um of film releases in quite a long time i i really thought about giving this a 4.5 but i just i i feel like i have to give it a 5 i just think it's perfect i'd love this film to death just oh, I- narratively it, you know it's not perfect but Technically it's so incredible to watch and um I just I I can't give it anything less.
0: I I know I'm 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 firmly with you and I think I'm gonna I'm gonna start off what I'm gonna say by by chiming in on the point that you just made which which is you know it hasn't had to stand up to the passage of time yet. And I think that that's okay. Like if these if we listen to this, this show again in like five years or whatever. And think back and for whatever reason, this film ages poorly. I think there's still merit in knowing that at, in this snapshot of time with what we've experienced of this film and how long it sat with us and whatever, um, that it, you saw it as being a five out of five. That's what the merit is. That's that's what we're talking about, how we're viewing it today. And cause I'm in the same boat, I'm going to give this movie five stars. This beautiful. It was everything I wanted out of this movie. And, Stuff I didn't know I wanted out of this movie was in this. I didn't know it was one continuous shot when I wanted to do it. Because that wasn't like advertised at all. It was advertised as being this big fancy war movie. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know that going in. Um, yeah. And that... It, it's so rare for, for a film to give you more than what you could possibly want. Um, in addition to all the other great things that we've talked about about this. And, and the realism and the drama and the emotion uh the sincerity of it all that uh, it it really just was so incredibly well done um and i i again for me 5 out of 5 is i it gave you it gave you it, there's nothing it left on the table it gave you everything this movie could reasonably give you and it had that extra gut reactional feeling for you that pushes it over that 4.5 edge and this movie hits both those marks for me so so i'm very very comfortable leaving that uh, as being, being the rating So full full five marks From Corwin and myself uh, Beautiful So Corwin Do you have your pick for next week? I do What do you got?
1: Uh, You know Sticking with the theme of Cinematographers that I Just absolutely adore And sticking with the theme of Single continuous shots Do you want to take a guess at what my film is for this week
0: uh birdman
1: it is birdman i'm going right. to be honest this is a movie i've seen once and did not like it so i'm going to really? give it another shot yeah so was a couple of years ago probably the year it came out maybe the year after and i knew everyone talked about how much they loved it and i was like all right i guess i got to you know give this a shot and I watched it just, and I remember thinking like, I don't get it. I don't get why people love this movie. I don't even think it's necessarily very good or entertaining. Um, granted, I was stupid as hell. So here, uh, here's to me proving myself wrong.
0: I have probably only seen it twice, but I remember loving this movie, which would track for who we are as people, yeah. um, as well yeah. as who we are as film watchers. So.
1: And you were definitely uh, one with a much more mature palate when this came out.
0: Ah, Maybe. I'd also like to think um, uh, college Josh, which is whatever we were in when this film came out, was uh, significantly more up his own ass (laughs) Uh,
1: (laughs) than than you were. That is pretty... Well, okay. I thought you were going to say than you are now. I was going to say, I don't know, Josh. You're pretty far up your own ass still. But yeah, no, I'll, I'll accept that. Yeah. Do you um, remember the year this came out? 20... 2014. Yeah. I was a junior in high school, so I was definitely a dumbass 16 year old watching this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Ah, well, that'll be, that'd be a fun right. to watch. Your picture? All right. I'm between two I'm between a foreign film that I know you haven't seen that I think you would really like, or an American classic that I know you have seen, but. My girlfriend hasn't. She asked that I start picking more classic movies so she can catch up. I don't know where to go. So, do you have any input?
1: Uh, I'm going to be honest. Uh, I did not hear roughly most of those words that you just said. I had no idea what you just picked. Uh,
0: I didn't pick anything. I asked you to help and you didn't. Oh. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Then I'll I'll go with the classic film. Um, and I'll save my other pick for next week. Uh, we're going to watch. Oh, love that movie. Yep. Yep.
1: i don't understand. Classic. I could have had class. I could have been a again- kid. Denda. Um, man, so, definitely, uh, definitely an episode for being up around asses talking about movies.
0: Truly. And I would also like to shout out the fact that we have done, like, every major Lee J. Cobb movie <laughs> over the span of, like, four weeks. <laughs> You're goddamn right. <laughs> Wait, seriously. I, I, Which was I left. also forgot he was in this. Hold on. Lee J. Cobb, what are you most known for? 12 Angry Men, we watched that. On the Waterfront, Exorcist. we're about to watch that. The Exorcist, we watched that. The only one that's on here for his, his known-for film that we haven't watched is Exodus, which I only have ever watched. So I don't No, know, I haven't seen
1: it either. I've heard mixed things, for sure.
0: I wouldn't be surprised at the slightest. But anyway, so that, those are the picks uh, for, for next week, Birdman and On the Waterfront. If you wanted to find us on Twitter to chat about the movies that we watched this week, or to uh, give suggestions for future weeks, you can do so at Big Screen Juice on Twitter. If you want a longer form discussion on any of the points we brought up today, or to complain or give ideas, whatever, you can hit us up via email at juicingthebigscreen at gmail.com. And until next Tuesday, y'all have a good one. Bye. What do you mean you're not recording the channel, dumb bitch? I see you. I see you. And that's how we get down. He did this um, last week when we recorded, but the audio was there, so I'm not worried. What it was weird hearing uh, myself okay. complaining about Craig leaving. <laughs>